Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have a full crew with us today and happy to have you listening. Good morning, Dustin. Morning, Brad. Morning, Brian. Morning, Brad. Philip. Hey, Brad. So we've got several great things to talk about today. We're going to talk a little bit about a listener question relative to low quality forage and scours. We're going to touch on how to some of the tips and tricks for processing young calves, as well as Philip's going to tell us a little bit about gut health. And we're going to talk beyond just the rumen. Before we get into those topics, if you haven't listened yet to Bovine Science with BCI, that's our new podcast, a little bit different format, kind of a one-on-one discussion, more in-depth discussion of some of the topics we discuss. So this week's episode was relative to grass tetany, and Philip talked about how we prepare for that, how we manage it, how we deal with some of the issues with that particular disease. So if you're interested, you may want to give it a try. There are also some other good topics on there. Brian, you've had some on scientific papers. Bob's done some on herd health, uh, several folks on there. So worth a listen. Before we get into our main topics today, guys, I have a piece of trivia for you. But before we get into the trivia, I'll ask you a question. Do you guys own Crocs? Yes, I have a pair of Crocs. That sounded like a confession. (laughs) (laughs) Because you asked it like an accusatory question. Fair enough. I do not own some, but my kids do. Okay. Brian? Yeah. My kids have some, and then there's kind of a community pair that floats around the house. So, yeah, That's perfectly normal. Okay, so what are those little decorations that you put in the holes on the Crocs are called what? They have a specific name. Yes, and I was at a meeting with you, and you answered this, and I was really impressed, but I, I cannot recall it. Well, see, I, what you want to do is I was in the same meeting, and I can't remember. You want to learn one piece of trivia? And then you just carry it with you. Yeah. Dustin, it's up to you. I don't recall, but I know my kids have. Gibbets. Yeah, Yeah, there you go. Gibbets. Not to be confused with giblets. Totally different (laughs) things. That L is important between those. But now you know know that one. Now you you can carry that piece of trivia with you and ask that question to people all the time and make yourself sound smart because you you know the answer. That's the the only piece of trivia I know. I'm thinking I'm not remembering that. (laughs) (laughs) You'll remember with my helpful giblets advice, not to get them confused. Okay, so one of the things that we wanted to talk about was processing young calves and i'll frame this as calves that are typically going through a spring or summer processing they may be between 60 and 120 days of age Uh, and brian you you and i've both had the experience and i think these guys have too you try to bring those calves through a shoot that's set up for adults and it doesn't work very well it's not as efficient not as efficient it can be challenging they turn around in the alleyway you have other issues so if you're going to process young calves, what are some of your recommendations to make that process go a little bit smoother? Well, there, there's a couple ways to handle this. So, and it depends on, I guess, kind of how you go about your processing, right? Is it something that you are, like you and your farm employees or ranch employees are doing primarily? Or is it, do you have an outside crew or is it, you, your family, and maybe your veterinarian. And because all of those kind of give you some access to some different resources, right? And there's really two things we kind of think about. We think about facilities and labor. The veterinary clinics that I worked at, uh, we typically, we had portable facilities and most of the portable facilities we had, had some level of adjustment to size, right? And so we could, if it was a load up alley, 
we could narrow the base so we don't have calves turning around as much. If we knew we were doing a lot of small calf work, one of the clinics I work in, we actually had a calf shoot, right? And so those things are hugely beneficial as opposed to if it's your ranch and your facilities, they might be fixed facilities. They might be one side. There are still some creative ways to handle that. I've seen facilities that were designed with the guardrail, right? And they had guardrail sides that were wide at the top, but then they had a narrow guardrails at the bottom. So cows, it's, that's their legs. It's no problem for them to walk through it, but then it, it would be like waist level or, or side level for the calves. And so it was narrower. So if you're designing facilities or remodeling facilities, there's some ways that you can set things up that will handle both sizes of animals. And then, I mean, maybe I should let somebody else talk about the labor part, but the labor part's a, another deal too. Like if you have the facilities, you can get away with less labor, but if you don't, you probably need a few more people. Yeah, Dustin, we've talked a fair bit about labor before. What are some of your thoughts, especially relative to, because this time of year, I might need a few more people just to help process calves. So growing up, we had a fixed, and we just made it work. You had four teenagers, right? My brother and sister. So we had bodies, mom, dad. So we That was how the alley was adjustable. That's how it was adjustable. filled it with extra bodies. Yes, (laughs) so we were able to, to make that work that way. Yeah, I don't know is, I mean, if you have access to labor, obviously more labor, easier it is to less stress and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. Philip, what are, what are your tips and tricks for working with these young stock? Well, so one of the things that Brian mentioned, adjustable shoots and stuff like that, but if you had a fixed alleyway or whatever, what I think I've done in, in the past and, and seen others do is have a stack of old pallets and then you line the alleyway with old pallets to narrow it up. And they're usually, if you stand them, they're tall enough that for the calves to get all the way up the side of the calf. And it seems to work pretty well. And what I've done it, you can get it narrow enough that they can't turn around most of the time. And unless you get one that's just really high strung. Yeah. And I think the challenge is you, as you go with these calves is they don't always, they may be a little bit more excited than the adults. They haven't been through the facility before. I think it's important to make their experience as good as possible and not increase the excitement. So that's both how we work them, how we manage them and the facilities themselves. And so there are sometimes options. I may or may not have facilities that are good for working calves. I may want to take them somewhere that they've got facilities to do that. Brian? Yeah. And I mean, I don't kind of made, made this sound like it's a challenging thing and it can be the facilities and labor challenges. You can, you might have to be a little creative, but you can overcome those things. And it certainly the benefits of processing those calves earlier, especially if we're talking about things like castration, dehorning, we want to do those as early as possible. And so I think there are ways kind of to get over that. The other, the other thing we haven't really talked about and Certainly there are parts of the world where ropings and brandings are still, still a thing, right? They still do that. And one of the ways that they get around the label, it it almost becomes a community event, right? Where I come help you with your branding, you come help me with my branding in situations where operation, a ranch may only need that extra labor a few days a year. That that's a, another creative way to get around the labor is, well, I'm helping you and you help me. And we just do it on two different days. Right. So there, there are ways in it. But it shouldn't outweigh the benefits of, of working those calves in an earlier stage of life. Yeah, so there, there are real benefits to getting them castrated. And if you have to dehorn, getting those things done early in the process. We've talked previously about implants and the pros and cons. And if you want to listen to that discussion, we've got a previous episode that covers that in more detail. And also pre-weaning vaccinations, which we talked a little bit about with Dr. Willems, that 
every situation doesn't need it, but if yours does, you have to be able to handle them. One of the presumptions that we've made here, and I think you guys are making, at least I have, is that we're separating the calves from the cows. We're not trying to run a cow and then a calf and then a cow and then a calf because a lot of back and forth in that process. Well, and especially if your solution to the labor is having more people in the facilities, doing that with adult cows is the safety issues there are just not conducive. So yeah, you really have to separate them out for processing. It's just not much way around that. Calves could get injured and and things like that too if you got cows and calves in the crowd tub or whatever that you're trying to push those cows up and calves get trampled or anything like that so yeah absolutely so dustin as we as we think and you mentioned some good points there on labor what about working with brian mentioned working with other people in the community are there other businesses or other places that you would think to maybe go get labor find labor no i mean the my first thought was exactly what he was saying you know you know growing up east of here not really experiencing the branding just seeing it on social media i mean it seems like there's lots of bodies and everybody from the community that would be a way or you know if there's local kids in our case we had lots of friends because we were young and so we could bring other kids and so i don't know if, if trying to find some neighbors or neighbors kids or local high school kids that might be willing to help out those whatever how many days a year you need them yeah and i think that's the part not to forget is we get people that i may need for these three days a year i still need to get them some training or have them have some ability because it is not common sense to know how to work and walk around cattle if you haven't been raised around cattle so i think giving them some training absolutely is a good point so great points there guys be sure and kind of to summarize Be sure your facilities are set up to handle the calves in whatever way that is, and be sure that you have adequate labor. And as Brian said, prioritize it, right? Make sure that your benefit is going to be worth the cost of getting that done. I want to move to our listener question because I think this is a good one. And it was coming through winter. The question was related to, we had some low quality hay. We had some corn stalks that we fed and mixed with a little bit of silage. Typically don't do that, but they had to feed silage this year because forage was a little bit lower quality. And they ended up having a scours outbreak. And the scours affected some of the calves, starting with some of those that were maybe a month old. And then they had several cases that were a lot younger than that. So Brian, Philip, Dustin, I wanted to get your thoughts relative to, what do you think's going on? In this scenario or what are some of the things you'd think about in general i guess i'll start and one of the important pieces of information here that in the question was they didn't have a lot of cases they're talking five or six cases out of several hundred cows but that's not typical for them so without i guess being boots on the ground on this case it's a little hard to know is were all five or six cases the same thing or were they something different? And it sounds like the timing was pretty close together, So, but they had some that were pretty sick. There's really nothing that I think of that coming out of silage would cause scours. Like, oh, maybe I could argue a salmonella might have been there, maybe a clostridium, but these calves are getting a little bit old for clostridium. So I feel like maybe it's it's a little bit of a stretch to i know the timing of the for of the silage feeding and the scours sounds like it's pretty close there's just really nothing we associate with causing that disease philip what about the low quality forage would that lead the calves to be more likely to scour no i wouldn't think so not from the calf directly and talking about these calves that being a month old they're not eating much besides milk they're nibbling a little bit maybe at the hay or something and chewing on stuff a little bit but there's not a whole lot of consumption there for them to to get some kind of toxin or something that would cause a, 
a problem. The only issue could be, depending on how long low-quality forage is being fed and how thin the cows are, whether colostrum was high quality or not. But you'd have cows in thin body condition, like less than five for something like that to happen. And I would think it would be a little bit more than just five or six out of 400 if that was the case. Yeah. So I, I think one of the things, and, and from this, we think about how we would physically feed silage. So we don't, if they, they said they don't normally feed silage, but often we're going to feed silage and you may be putting it into a bunk or a concrete pad or on the ground. And often we feed in very similar areas and scours is fecal oral in cattle. I mean, in, well, in all sp- Almost all species, fecal oral is the main thing. So think about that, what you will. But it is fecal oral. And if we concentrate fecal in one spot and the calves, as you said, they're not eating anything, but they're nosy and they explore, lick, do other stuff. So I think that could be, it may be not necessarily the feedstuffs. And I don't know in this particular case either. It may be not necessarily the feedstuffs, but it may be the environment and the feeding pattern in that process. Yeah, that, that was kind of my thought, too, is, you know, we talk about young calves out on pasture and, and our, we always are saying spread them out, right? Get them, keep them on clean pasture, spread them out, what, however, we're, whatever we're talking about the specific management. And again, I knew this was a situation where they had to do it simply because they ran out of other feedstuffs. But anytime you concentrate young calves, you're more prone, you're increasing the load in the environment of the pathogens. And you're increasing the odds for transmission. So may not directly be the silage, but the management associated with feeding it. Yeah, maybe in previous years they unrolled hay and so things were more spread out or things like that. But this year with the silage, they had to go to feeding in a bunk. So that just concentrated things more this year, which is why they had those scour issues this year versus other years. So you guys talked about feed. You've talked about the environment. What about the climate? Could that have any impact? So, you know, drought versus rain. I mean, is this year different compared to, I, I don't know. I'm just, as the economist, I don't have a lot to contribute to. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I think that's a good question because a- absolutely. We'll see time to, because most of the pathogens that we're talking about like it cool and wet and dank, right? So t- typically we think about scours in times, a wet March, lots of overcast, sunlight bad for viruses and bacteria but you will see times that are like that so i wouldn't typically expect in a drought although the drought impacts forage quality which impacts nutrition so absolutely i think climate plays a role it would just be that for scours in particular my thought would be opposite brian yeah no and the question says they didn't have a a lot of mud this year so i kind of just kind of put that aside but yeah anytime anytime you have those it's really the wet right wet conditions are great for pathogen survival in the environment. So I don't know that it necessarily applies here. This one's a little, I say, I just think you probably had to be there and maybe there's a few other things we would look at before we started jumping to the silage directly causing the scours. And I don't know, I think just as part of the history, I think that's part of the discussion that you would have. But I think your point there, Brian, is sometimes you get these outbreaks and you're trying to figure out what's going on. That is a great time to have somebody from outside take a look because there are things that we're doing management wise that we may not even think twice about, right? That it's different this year, but we haven't thought twice about it. And that outside set of eyes can be helpful. Staying in the gut, Philip, this is good one for you. So we're staying in the gut. One of the things that has come up, and I've heard the term, and I just want to think broadly here, I've heard the term gut health, 
and how important that is to cattle. And it has been said relative to dairy cows, young calves, feedlot cattle. And, and when I think gut health, I'm thinking the rumen because that's what's really unique about cattle is that should I expand my thought process or what are people talking about when they're saying gut health? Well, first, let's just kind of define gut health. And when we talk about gut health, there's a lot of aspects to it. So we're talking about the just from a feed digestion standpoint, especially in the rumen, we're talking about having a good balance of forage digestion, starch digestion. There, So our, the rumen pH is, is maintained. We're not getting acidosis issues. We're getting good, healthy microbial growth in the rumen so that we're getting good forage digestion and things like that. We got good rumination and chewing, you know, cud chewing and all those kind of things. So when we talk about gut health, it's kind of like a big, broad thing that encompasses lots of different components. But we can think about it throughout the lower GI tract too. I mean, so we, we were just talking about scours. You know, scours is a gut health issue in the fact that you've got a foreign pathogen in there that's not normal part of the normal microflora and it throws things off. And so same thing anywhere through the GI tract. When we do something that kind of messes up that gut microflora, then that kind of throws things off and can cause some adverse effects. And so those are the main things we talk about or think about with gut health is maintaining that proper function. Okay. So when we think about some of those aspects, especially, and, and one of the places this has come up is relative to liver abscesses in feed yards. So liver abscesses can form when we have breaks in that barrier and we actually have pathogens that move through. And our typical thought process is acidosis or decreased pH in the rumen leads to damage of that wall, bacteria move to the liver, set up shop, make an abscess, right? That's the traditional yeah. process. I know you've done some work and worked with some researchers that have really looked at maybe it's not just the rumen. Yeah. So there's be a little bit more specific. We, we've typically thought that acidosis in the rumen damages the rumen wall. And then that allows a place for basically creates like an ulcer and that allows a place for pathogens to cross the rumen wall, get into the blood, and then they set up camp in the liver and create an abscess. But that pathology is not consistent. And so their thought process that maybe this is also happening in the colon, in the, what we call the hindgut, because in uh, grain-fed cattle, we're pushing a lot of starch into those animals. And there's a quite a bit of that starch that passes out of the rumen before it's fermented. And cattle have a limited ability to digest starch in the small intestine. They just have a limited capacity to make pancreatic amylase, which is what the enzyme that digests starch in the small intestine. And so we get a lot of starch that makes it into the colon and the hindgut. And then you can have the same thing because in the colon and the hindgut, you have microbial fermentation all over again. And so if we got a lot of starch going back there, we can have too fast a fermentation and we can have reduction in pH and we get acidosis. And with the thought process is in the, in the hindgut, you've got a different structure to the intestinal wall that might be even more susceptible to that low pH than the rumen is. And so that could be a place for those pathogens to get across the gastrointestinal tract wall and into the blood and then cause those liver abscesses. So the ruminants are different than a lot of species that will graze and eat grass because of the rumen, but there are many species that are 
hind, what we'd call hindgut fermenters, right? So it's not an abnormal process that mm-hmm. you're getting the starch there and you're dealing with it in the hindgut. That's what primarily what horses do. Yeah, and so just think about horses. You feed horses too much grain, too much starch, you get colic. You know, same thing that you're pushing. But it's all related to the hindgut. Yeah, it's all related to the hindgut because you fed them so much that, again, it passes through the small intestine and you get fermentation in the hindgut of that starch, and so you're causing problems. So, and this is something that you're currently investigating? Yeah, so myself and some other researchers here in the College of Vet Med are, are looking into this idea. We're, we're jumping into this whole area of liver abscess and gut health and, and trying to better understand what's going on so we can come up with some interventions to try to prevent the abs- liver abscesses. Absolutely. So liver abscesses and, and other issues could be associated with that, right, Brian? Yeah, and Philip's talking a lot about the interaction between the microbes and the wall, right? It's a wall integrity gut health issue, but there's actually a lot of research going on. People listen to the podcast have probably heard about the association with different disease conditions in people where it's not just the wall microbe interaction, but it's the microbe microbe. So it's all the bacteria that live in your intestine and what we eat, where we live, all of those things can influence that. And, And actually there's some pretty good evidence that the some of all the bacteria on our skin and in our intestinal tract is probably the biggest organ that we actually have. And so it's pretty, it's really complex. It's cool to see Philip diving in and kind of taking one area and looking at the liver abscess components of that hindgut health. So I got a question. I was listening to Philip, you described this whole process, which I'm glad you put it in simple terms that I could understand. Basically, if I understand, there's a couple places where maybe the bacteria get into the bloodstream and everything goes back to the liver and they set up shop. Why the liver and why not some other organ? Because the blood vessels that drain the gastrointestinal tract, the first place that all that blood goes is the liver. So that's called it the portal vein and the portal circulation. And that all goes straight to the liver for the liver because the liver is the primary organ that metabolizes nutrients in the body. And so all of those nutrients go straight to the liver first. It's the filter. It's filtering everything out. No, that's the kidney. Yeah. Well, that's another filter. (laughs) Yeah. There's multiple filters. Yeah. So excellent. So that would be interesting to hear some follow-ups on that, Philip, as you do some of that research. And we appreciate you sharing with us some of the early thought process behind it. And we appreciate you joining us today. As I mentioned at the top, if you're interested in listening to Philip talk a little more detail about grass tetany or some of the other topics, we've got bovine science with BCI. But if you want to send us a listener question that we can answer on air, send us an email to bci at ksu.edu you.